This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. So much to talk about. Uh, today, The we'll see something very unusual. The House is going to be going down to the border to hold their... Uh, the House Judiciary Committee is going to be holding their meetings uh, and their hearings at the border today because it is a mess. And, and no one should deny that. They're going to be in Yuma, Arizona, where possibly is the worst. Uh, although Texas would like to fight you on that. Uh, meanwhile, we have... Uh, Richard Haas, the best-selling author now, his book, book uh, Bill of Obligations, Ten Habits of Good Citizens, is on the best-seller list. He's going to be with us in a matter of moments to unwind the president's trip. And Doug Collins at the bottom of the hour, former ranking member of the U.S. House Judiciary Committee, author of The Clock and the Calendar. i got to get him and got to get his breakdown of what happened in Georgia with the four-person or four-woman uh, speaking out about what she's about to find, what she recommended. Uh, to the district attorney in terms of uh, being a member of the grand jury. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. But I don't read into that that he's thinking of using nuclear weapons or anything like that. I think it's, uh, I'm not sure what else he was able to say in his speech at the moment. But I think it's a mistake and uh, I'm confident we'll be able to work it out. Wow, he sounds exhausted. China, Russia, the U.S. and Ukraine, what it all means for world peace. And breaking this morning, the U.S. just announced it'll be sending more troops to Taiwan. I'll break it all down and give you my takeaways from Munich, Warsaw, and Kiev. Number two. To the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania, you are not forgotten. We stand with you, we pray for you, and we will stay with you in your fight to help answer and the accountability that you deserve. Uh, the president, uh, the former president of the United States uh, beats the current president of the United States and the secretary of transportation to East Palestine. It welcomes him, stealing the spotlight from the president. And I think the White House is tone deaf on this. Secretary Buttigieg is ashamed into showing up today and seeing the remnants of the toxic train. Number one. The real problem that they have is that Kamala Harris is not ready for prime time or daytime for that matter. Uh, re- Democrats are very nervous to think of her as the runner up to the Biden presidency if, in fact, he decides he's not going to run. Uh, That is Kellyanne Conway offering her analysis of the political story that say Joe might not go and might not run again. Some Dems are looking at Plan B, as it seems the president has not fully committed to re-election. What would that mean for the Democratic field as Republicans have at least three candidates all but ready to declare? We'll discuss it. But first things first, let's talk about that impactful overseas uh, trip with the author of Bill of Obligations, uh, Richard Haas. Welcome back. Hey, thanks, Brian. How you doing? So, Richard, for me, the thing that's most disturbing is the galvanizing of the relationship we all knew existed between Russia and China. What do you make of this, the big show of an alliance and a promise of a President Xi trip, perhaps as early as May, to visit one-on-one with Vladimir Putin? 
Uh, as always uh, seems to be the case with both China and Russia, is they double down on decisions. It's been a year, not simply since the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but a year since the so-called no-limits relationship. The pact was signed between Russia and China. And I think Xi Jinping has now cast his prestige or put his prestige on the line with Putin. The war hasn't gone well. And I think the Chinese are going to double down and essentially continue to provide you know, economic help, buy energy, and increasingly provide so-called dual-use technologies. And I, I think essentially they're going to do what they think they have to do to make sure Vladimir Putin doesn't lose. Are they enjoying the fact that you could look at it as we're emptying our weapons, uh, our weapons stocks? Uh, they, we have a drawn-out distraction in Eastern Europe. Not saying we're fighting, but we're supplying. And they can feel as though they have a little bit more freedom in the Pacific? Quite possibly. I think the idea that you say you know, we're, it's, it's having a negative impact on American and Western readiness. Uh, you know, we potentially face a world where we've got to think about you know, conflicts, not just in Europe, but in Asia, the so-called Indo-Pacific, possibly within Iran. That's an awful lot. We don't have the, the stocks. We don't have the defense industrial base. I actually think we need a serious conversation in this country about ramping up our capacity to produce equipment and ammunition. We are woefully short, given the world we live in. I, I would think the Armed Services Committee, that should be a priority, whatever it is. Our defense budget, you know, we're not increasing it. I think Republicans are willing to tighten there and there. Okay, just so you know, we're going to have problems there if we do that, if we don't agree to start spending more on defense for, to face the challenges that are clearly there. You've got to spend more, but also we need a, an understanding between the arms industry and the government. A lot of these uh, companies are, are basically saying, look, we're not going to invest we're not, uh, million, billions of dollars unless we know for sure that you're going to be buying enough of this stuff for long enough so we get a reasonable return on investment. So I actually think the entire industry needs to sit down with the mm -hmm. government and come up with a long-term plan. Yeah, listen, and we do enough. We could do enough in sales of some of these weapons equipment to start financing our own. Uh, as we as we look at going forward, number one, I think I told you when you were in studio, I am firmly believe there's no question that we need to arm the Ukrainians so they are successful. And then we can outline what success looks like, which is what is possible to me. It's not a matter of enforcing the border or going to the people of Palestine, Ohio or helping out Ukrainians. And I just think it's so short term and so political to see it any other way. What do you say to people who are critics and saying, stop pretending it's 19 38. First of all, you're exactly right. It's not a question of either or. It's both. There's threats to our national security from abroad. There's threats to our well-being, our national security, if you will, here at home. The good news is given the size of our economy, we can we can and should do do both. We spent far higher levels uh, during the Cold War as a percentage of our GDP defense spending as a percentage of our economy was often twice what it is today. The last I checked, we did pretty well during the Cold War. So we can and should do both. And I think politicians have to explain that to the people. So and also, do you think the president was wrong, and I do, for not calling out China and saying what, what Blinken said over the weekend on the Sunday shows? We have intelligence that shows that you're about to sell weapons to Russia. Don't do it. The president has not done it. The Pentagon speaks out, but the president didn't. That was a long speech that he gave. He could have slid that in. Why do you think he yeah, didn't? But, again, yeah. 
calling people out publicly to me is a tactic. I'd only do it if I thought it was actually going to move them in the direction we want. I actually think way too much of the U.S.-Chinese relationship is now being conducted in public. Make call me old-fashioned, but often things in private uh, pay off better. So, to me, the goal of foreign policy is not to call out the Chinese. It's to get the Chinese to do some things we want them to do, not to do things we don't want them to do. So to me, that's all tactical. I don't care what the president says so much. What I'm interested in is what the Chinese do, what we communicate privately. So I think you like the expansion of the Guam base of the Philippines and now putting more men into men and women into Taiwan. Look, I'm supportive of doing more for Taiwan. I think, you know, we can't change Chinese ambitions. The mainland, what we can do is change their behavior. We've got to deter them from doing things. I think the stakes here are are enormous. We've also got to be careful not to signal that somehow we're changing the basics of our policy. We don't support Taiwan's independence. We need a grown-up foreign policy. Let's be disciplined about Taiwan, but let's also signal the mainland that if they are going to ever use force against Taiwan, they're going to regret it. Well, what does that mean, regret it? Does it mean what the president says, says we'll get involved militarily, or what the State Department says that we don't? We would get 100 percent we would get involved militarily. We have got to. China could not be allowed to gain control of Taiwan. This is a democracy. It's the largest advanced chip manufacturer in the world. But also allies like Japan, if we're not there for Taiwan, they will totally rethink their relationship with us. Richard Haas, our guest, uh, and his book, A Bill of Obligations, is now on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Richard, as we move forward from this trip, it's up to Ukraine to survive the winter, and it looks like Russia's going to use the winter in the hardened ground to try to move forward. <laughs> what could you tell me about the situation on the ground right now? We hear the Ukrainian intelligence continue to assess that Russia lacks the combat power and resources necessary to sustain this offensive that they promised. We also hear about friction between the Wagner Group, the Chechnyan force, and the traditional Moscow military force. What are you hearing? I hear all that. Uh, I don't think Russia can prevail on the battlefield. Indeed, their strategy is to attack Ukrainian cities. On the other hand, even if we do send Ukraine some more advanced arms, I don't believe Ukraine can prevail on the battlefield. There's simply too many Russian troops that are too dug in. So if you ask me, Brian, to take out my crystal ball, I think we're looking at a long slog here. But I see the problem is, and see if you see differently, that the American public writing $113 billion checks every year is not going to work, especially with an election coming up. So I think this year is a critical year for the Ukrainians to show progress. Do you agree? Look, it would be good if they did, but uh, I'm skeptical. Maybe they'll have a little bit of progress. It's not going to be decisive. And I think what it's going to require is that American leaders continue to explain to the American people, yes, this is expensive, but here, here, here why it's worth it. I think, though, this is going to go on for years. Putin is playing for time. Putin is counting on the fact that we don't have, if you will, an endurance. And I don't want to play into his hands. So I think we've, we've got to be prepared to, to stay the course. Would you start talking to businesses when it comes to China about moving manufacturing out, formally or informally? We know that uh, Adidas, Nike are making that move. To a degree, Apple is moving it, to el- moving it elsewhere. Do you believe that should be part of our foreign policy? Absolutely. I mean, to some extent, we want to increase the manufacturing here at home, hence what's going on with chips in, in Arizona. 
We want to do what's called friend shoring, come up with arrangements. So for critical components, materials, either we produce them here or our partners and, and, and allies do it. But yeah, I think we ought to become less dependent on China because that gives China too much leverage. And we obviously need to become more restrictive on either what we give China access to or on what we provide them. Will we have to leverage Blackstone? Will Blackstone listen if a, a president, I don't care who it is, says, I need to talk to you guys, the Nike and others say, guys, I need, need you to come out. Uh, will they? Will that be something where Blackstone just says, excuse me, uh, where uh, this is this is a free market economy, we'll make our own decisions? I think it's going to happen already because we're getting more restrictive in, in regulatory policy. What's co- there's something called CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., which limits the access we give other governments, in this case China. We're going to create a similar thing to limit what we send to to China. I'm on various you know, investment committees and so forth, people, you know, for institutions that have endowments. Every single one of those is looking to restrict or reduce its exposure to China. People know this is going to become a harder and harder environment to do business in with any assurance that it's going to, going to stay open. So I actually think uh, this is beginning to dial down. What about university donations? Should a UPenn walk away? Should a Yale and uh, whoever is on the table, whether it's UCLA or somebody else, should they be should they be pushed to walk away from some of the free money they've been getting? To me, it depends upon the details. Uh, I don't. I don't believe in accepting government money from any government. I don't think. I don't think universities or think tanks ought to be taking money from any government, be it our own, much less China's. I think otherwise, you've got to look at who you're getting the money and basically say, are you comfortable? Does it stand scrutiny? Are you independent to do what you want to do? Uh, and I think you just got to ask that question every time. So, Rich, when you, uh, Richard Haas, our guest, Bill of Obligations. You like to get your, these ten habits of good citizens in schools. At some level, get people to understand there. You can't just take; you got to give, uh, and you, there should be an obligation. So, have, do you have a plan to do that? Because it's so valuable. Obviously, it's resonating. Uh, I'm beginning to formulate one. Thanks for asking. I'm beginning to talk to lots of governors about getting it into high schools, and I'm beginning to talk to lots of universities about making it a required course on campus. And that's something I'm just going to I'm going to keep working both to get civics in the classroom. Also, what's called, Brian, information literacy. New Jersey now has made it a matter of law. But to basically start teaching young people not how to think, but how to become critical consumers. How do they know a fact when it hits them on the head? And how do they know something maybe that that isn't a fact? How do they how do they discern the difference between the two? So I think we need to make young people smarter consumers as well as make them literate in American history and American government. Got it. Uh, Dr. Richard Haas, congratulations on the success of the book. Always great to talk to you. Thank you, sir. You got it. Meanwhile, 20 minutes after the hour, we come back. Your turn, one 408 I do have to tell you that I'm going to be talking to Doug Collins about this. This uh, grand jury foreman, woman, who came out and spoke to the AP, the New York Times, CNBC, NBC, and CNN about what it was like behind the scenes with this grand jury trying to indict a sitting president that could have as many as a dozen indictments handing down, how she's already breached her obligation by coming public about the deliberations, and her demeanor is absolutely disconcerting and hysterically funny if there wasn't so much at stake. I just think she nullified the whole grand jury operation and made it out to be the folly it is. I'm going to talk to Doug Collins, who's not only uh, a, a, a um, pastor, a congressman, also a lawyer, served in the military. Uh, he's a quadruple threat. 
Your call's next, 1-866-408-7669. Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. You don't have a message for them? I do, and I shared it with the press many times today. I'd refer you to those comments. Do you mind sharing it with us? No, I'm going to refer you to the comments that I made to the press because uh, right now I'm taking some personal time and I'm walking down the street. Are you going down there? What's that? Are you going down there at all? Um, yep, I am. When are you going? Uh, I'll share that uh, when I'm ready. Yeah, when you're ready, take some personal time. He's there today. That is, uh, you know, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He's dealt with a lot of catastrophes in South Bend, uh, like, for example, not being able to fill up a pothole and controversy about the way he handled things. I don't think anybody thinks that he was really a superior mayor in South Bend, and he actually equated the two between what happened in Palestine, Ohio. The president has not go by, gone by. Now the the mayor Mayor Pete, now Secretary of Transportation Pete, made things so much worse by not showing up until three weeks later. And then Donald Trump, in your face, shows up not only with water, not only with cleaning supplies, but with Big Macs for the first responders. And he ordered one for himself. And I think one of his comments was classic Trump. Nobody knows this menu better than me. It's because he loves McDonald's and he believes everyone else should love McDonald's. But this is this is how bad this may, this guy is. He's supposed to be the next generation, the great hope, the great hope for Democrats. And it turns out, Mr. Yale, Mr. Oxford, Mr. Uh, Mayor, is a, is seems to be an epic fail. And you know why it's failing? Because he's not trying. That's the worst. Here's Mayor Trent Conway yesterday on what they need. Cut nine. Uh, so far, uh, we have I think we have everything we need. Um, but we're definitely going to need, you know, more in the future. And we, we need to make sure that they uh, stay here. Right. He's worried about people leaving because it seems like they're more concerned with getting the track open again. All the cars gone and not the soil cleaned. Here's more from the mayor. Cut 10. I think there's some people that feel that way. Uh, a lot of our residents have, uh, moved back in, um, and I'm genuinely concerned about their concerns. Uh, I, I just don't know what they, they tell us the water's safe. Uh, it's safe to go back to your home, but yet there's people getting rashes. And I mean, they're nervous. So it, I, I, I really feel for our residents. 
Right. There's a lot of questions. A little something long-term. So we'll have to test this. I think one of the big stories that's going to emerge from this, was it right to blow up that car, to dump all the chemicals into the soil, and then blow up these train cars with a forced incineration? You've seen the pictures. Uh, I don't know. A lot of people are saying, who told them to do that? It seems to have made things worse. But if it exploded on its own, it would have been shrapnel for miles, they say. Doug Collins next. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in. I just, I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. I'm, I cannot, I'm at a loss of words. This is Emily Coors. She is the foreperson of the grand jury that's convened for months to see if they're going to be result in an indictment of anybody related to overturning their election results from 2020. So from the president to Lindsey Graham to Rudy Giuliani, these people have been marched in and out, not the former president, but they used his voice and this grand jury has been sequestered. Now, according to the judge presiding, the D.A., they're allowed to do interviews. Don't bring up any of the deliberations. A couple of things as I bring in Congressman Doug Collins, former ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, author of The Clock and the Calendar, uh, who is a lawyer himself, a pastor as well, who knows Georgia as well as anyone. I'm going to play a series of bites. First off, that's the best. So that's the four person. What is your when you were watching these interviews listening, what were you thinking? I'm amazed because, again, this is a situation which you wouldn't expect. You'd expect it maybe a one or two word soundbite. I, I enjoyed serving. You know, this is what we did. You know, now it's in the hands of the DA. But the more this goes, it, it I mean, it's just interesting to see. And it's something I don't think any of us have ever seen before. But her attitude. Yeah, it's very flippant. It, it, she comes across as this was a, almost a it was an exercise that wasn't the solemnity of what this actually was. And I think that's the concern that a lot of people are having right now, especially if you look at it. Is that the seriousness of which you take somebody that could be indicted for the first time ever, a former president? I would love to swear at him, have him look me in the eyes and say, repeat after me. I mean, that's astounding. But I guess that's okay. But when it comes to deliberations about what took place, she talks about the people that came in. She talks about a dozen indictments, perhaps, maybe more. Cut 27. Did you recommend charges against Donald Trump? What would your reaction be if the DA decides against bringing any charges after what you've seen? I will be sad if nothing happens. I, I will be frustrated if nothing happens. This was too much, too much information, too much of my time. There was just too much for this to just be, oh, okay, we're good, bye. And if it was just a perjury charge? I will be happy as long as something happens. <laughs> McBurney, who is the chief judge down in Fulton County, cannot be happy. I would just have to assume cannot be happy about this um, because he went out of his way to make sure that this report. I mean, they he you know this was about a month ago. He said, okay, had the hearing. He heard from everybody. He said, I'm gonna put out uh, you know parts of this. He put out the con- you know some of the conclusions. He put out the the part, but he left out things that could interfere or unfairly tarnish um, something in the investigation. I just—it's just amazing to me that, I, that it is, 
I'm sure that there were conversations at some point yesterday, but McBurney's, uh, I'm sure, can't be happy about this. How about, I mean, they look actually foolish, but they must have known this, this girl is an absolute, she's a giggling teenager with huge responsibilities. I mean, what, what are you talking about? By this way, you handle yourself. If you are Trump's attorney, what are you thinking? Well, I, I think you look at it, and it, you know, and, and as he's already said, many have commented about it. it. Just it presents, okay, was this a serious inquiry? Was it something that was looked at? And I think, you know, look, these are things that the, the that the DA in Georgia is going to have to look at as, as she goes forward. She's got to bring these to another grand jury anyway. But it does put it in a very, I mean, it, it, we've already seen. There's been stories out there already from you know other attorneys saying, hey, look, this is this is not good. If you represent, I mean, Trump's got to feel good. If they were going to indict him, he's certainly got a, a reason to, uh, to I guess, countersue, to protest, look to get this well, I, any type of indictment overturned. I think I have an argument. I think the interesting thing will be is what what do they bring to the to. And again, I think taking the two here, you, you, there will be another grand jury that sees just simple evidence and doesn't really go through what this uh, special grand jury went through. So, you know, it's still in the, the, the DA's hands in Fulton County. The question, though, is, is, is like I said, she's sort of implying, the, and I won't say pressure, but whatever she's saying, look, there's something needs to happen here. And so that's, again, all outside of what the judge had already said, basically. So here's, uh, here's this guy, David Ar- uh, Arnberg on MSNBC. Maybe she did five interviews. They found her name. The AP found her name because it was out on a Freedom of Information Act request. And they called her and said, you can do an interview. Okay. Then the New York Times goes, I'd like to do an interview. And then CNN said, we'd like to do an interview. He said, okay, that's fine with me. Uh, and you'll see how that goes. Here's David Orangeburg, uh, the state attorney in Palm Beach County, Florida. Cut 32. Will not stop an indictment against a former president. Keep in mind, uh, it is a feature of our grand jury system, not a bug, for a 30-year-old unemployed individual who does not even vote in elections to decide whether a former president will be indicted for the first time in our country's history. It is not a feature for a grand juror to blab about her excellent adventure during her eight-month experience and how funny Rudy Giuliani was. If uh, Trump is indicted, it's not going to affect matters because, as Mika said, this is a special-purpose grand jury. This is not the grand jury that will be doing the indictments. This is a grand jury that advises the district attorney there, Fannie Willis, on whether she should seek indictments. Also, she didn't give away the store. She, She did conceal at least what was redacted in the grand jury report. She didn't give away the grand jury deliberations. So although it is a bad look, it is not going to make a difference in the end. I, I think he's partially right, partially wrong. I think the issue here, though, is a, is a public perception of this. And I think the public perception of this is, is you know, there's a public perception and there's the legal. And there's always, you know, those two that, that fall apart. And the public perception of this is the way it was flippantly handled. And you see these interviews is that, you know, are you taking this seriously? Is it something that was actually, you know, that was the work put in? But then again, on the other side, like I said just a minute ago, the, the issue with the, the district attorney is not what the grand jurors felt. The issue is what do I have in law? What do I have in evidence? And she's now got to make those decisions. But, it, I mean, look, I think nobody will say this is a good look. Um, I saw a story earlier today that says that she's now <laughs> stopped uh, answering media requests. So I think, you know, we've probably seen all we're going to see of this. So, you know, you think Mar-a-Lago, they say, well, the president's going to be indicted. Then we find the classified documents everywhere around uh, Joe Biden and Mike Pence. So I believe that's neutralized that. A little bit, yeah. It mm-hmm. has. Well, and you got Pence, you got other, and 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 I think, and I think, well, what that one showed in a difference, and I think maybe if you look at it from this perspective, 
is it shows the DOJ perspective up there of how they investigated these two and how they, they went about it. And I think that's still a, a concern. You and I have talked about this before. I mean, how do you let somebody stay in a house in which you raid two weeks later? I mean, and which is already known while they're actually going into their the other house to look for these documents. I mean, th- that's, that's the concern in that one. That's why I think you've heard that one tamped down a great deal because yeah. there's just no, you know, force on it. So – you think I'm wrong to conclude that this is going to be really scrutinized and maybe looked at differently because she has come out? I think it'll. I think it will be. I think it is another element now that will be used. Yes, I think you're right in that regard. The question is, what would it actually, you know, entail, you know, going forward? You know, again, it'll be an open question. I mean, I disagree in the sense that he, she did pretty much come up to the line. I mean, almost over the line, if if not over in in what McBurney had set forth and what he wanted to make sure was who's the McBurney? report. McBurney, he's the chief judge down there who's been overseeing this. So I think that is, uh, you know, there is a danger here, you know, of of saying things that you know that there's a perception from general public of one thing is wrong. There's a perception from a legal perspective. What can I, you know, prove in court? And I think that's your biggest issue. And then would be you you just know too that if you're gonna bring an indictment against the sitting president Rudy Giuliani, Lindsey Graham and others, there's gonna be uh there's gonna be a lot of scrutiny on that. Yes, right? very much so. so very much so. And, Political and legal. So here's more from Emily, cut twenty nine. Did you recommend charges against Donald Trump? I really don't want to share something that the judge made a conscious decision not to share. I I will tell you that it was a process where we heard his name a lot. Uh, we definitely heard a lot about former President Trump, and we definitely discussed him a lot in the room. And I will say that uh, when this list comes out, you wouldn't... There are no major plot twists waiting for you. I mean, you pretty much lay it out there. I mean, she, she she's saying... There and I think that's the that's that closest. Or name a lot deliberations. Yeah, I, I mean she. That's where I think she crossed over. I think that's where it, you know it, it gave the indication of saying you know and again to her, what she said says not a you know if you're outside observing well where it's going to go you know who would be involved well I mean most of that's been out there but now to actually say yes this is you know sort of confirming what we've known. The other thing is she did say. That we were going to subpoena the president, but it wouldn't have been worth the hassle and the pushback and the battle he would have given before he went there. That tells a little bit more. I want to talk about uh, a lot, but uh, the other story in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution today is Brian Kemp's relationship with Karl Rove. Yeah. And they, he's being invited over to a donor summit, and so is uh, Tim Scott, I believe, too. And they say if Brian Kemp definitely has eyes on a higher office, it's just a matter of when, but he clearly has influence because – Every Republican knows they need Georgia. Yeah, tell you're you're in Georgia. Tell me what you think. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I mean the governor is definitely he had an impressive election. He did. I mean he ran. He 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 they they he hit the perfect you know is that perfect wave. He hit it. He hit. He knew exactly what to do, how to do it. He he maintained through a through a blistering you know criticism from from the former president from a lot of people, and he won Georgia. And it shows it goes back to Georgia. I think Georgia being tired, but also looking at the fact that you have a sitting governor who's the economy is doing good, the Georgia state's doing good. He's feeling that right now. And so, uh, look, I think I'm not so sure if it'll be a 24 run. I think the interesting thing will be in Georgia will be how it relates, you know, his donor fundraising, uh, maybe more toward a you know, possible Senate run in 26 or, or something else. But again, he's again, he is one that is feeling the results and the glow of a great election in November. Going forward, especially on a national level, the one thing Brian Kemp has not had the governor, who I think has done a great job in many respects in Georgia. There's, you know, things we've always disagreed, but, you know, look, 
there's a brighter light once you go outside your home state. And I think that would be an interesting discussion, especially, you know, and again, could he handle that? Probably so. But it's, 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 it's building up right now. We see this a lot of times with, we saw it with Glenn Youngkin right after, you know, he won in Virginia. The first comment, I mean, he hadn't even hardly been sworn in. They said he's the next presidential candidate. So I think this is just a normal cycle. A couple of things they said about Scott Brown, too. When yes, Scott, Kennedy. Scott Brown, you know, Tim Scott. It, it, it's, it's, Brian, we've gotten to this on both sides, Republicans and Democrats. And I'm not trying to take away from Governor Kemp. I mean, Governor Kemp's a friend. I've known him for a long time. And, and I'm glad to see that there is excitement about Georgia. But I think what we've gotten into on both parties here is we, we see one speech. Remember the Barack Obama speech at the Democratic National Convention? The minute he gave the speech, there's our next president. And, and all the for machinery. John Kerry. For yeah, John Kerry. And John Kerry. And the machinery just. And it worked. Come, and it did. So uh, I just saw Governor Kemp running the campaign, beating a superstar, their superstar, Stacey Abrams, who's, yep. you know, she can raise money. <laughs> she definitely revolutionized election laws to the worst for me, in yep. my view. And she can speak. Extremely bright. She was a very formidable cam- campaigner. I mean, unlike Peter O'Rourke, I thought it was always way over, you know, over uh, hyped. I looked at her and I said, she's going to be tough. You won by one point. You know what I'm heartened by? Mm-hmm. It was performance-based. Kemp produced during the pandemic, yeah. too. He took a lot of slings and arrows, but he let people live their lives the best he could. It Same is. with DeSantis. Wins by one. Yep. And then says, watch me for four years. He came back and goes, you win by 19. Yeah, exactly. So that, to me, that's unlike Pete Buttigieg and Kamala Harris. If They, they had an opportunity to impress people. And they they have not. No, they haven't. And, and also, Stacey Abrams, one of the things that was benefit politics is about timing, as we all well know. Her best shot was when she lost by one. That was her best shot. And then she spent four years basically, you know, complaining about the election in Georgia, that she should have been governor. And also she disconnected from her base. They saw her flying all over the country. They saw her appearing in movies as the International Federation president in Star Trek. They saw her, you know. Be part of the boycott. Yeah, be part of the boycott in in Atlanta. Those kind of things that separated her from the very base that got her within 50,000 votes the first time. And I think I heard that a lot in Georgia, and I, I was traveled around a great deal. I had Democrats who said no. No, there's others. I'm just not going there. So we saw the president of the United States, uh, former president of the United States, go down to Palestine, Ohio. Mm-hmm. When we come back, I'll talk about that. Yes. He came up very presidential, treated like a rock star. He knows this stuff. <laughs> and for people who think that he's not warm, uh, he's a warm guy one-on-one. Yeah, and the thing about uh, President Trump, <laughs> he yeah, he knows a lot of celebrities, but he likes farmers. He likes retail owners. You do not have to be rich and powerful to impress him. That's what I think is his most impressive quality. I saw that yesterday. Doug Collins knows all that, also knows the whole field. We'll discuss that, too. And in two hours, you'll get to see what he looks like uh, because he'll be on Outnumbered. Don't move. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. You have medical background, right, Doug? <laughs> oh, plenty. Yeah. I've been to the doctor. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I, you, you weren't a medic. You were no, a, no, I'm a chaplain. Chaplain. So we were just going back and forth about how uh, detached some people in the media are intentionally or unintentionally, how Bill Muir can do an interview with 
or the president of the United States and the only thing get out, how do you feel about Russia getting out of our nuclear agreement, to me is nuts, as opposed yeah. to, why do you put China in your speech? What are you going to do if they actually combine right. and give weapons to, to Russia? What were you thinking leaving F- Afghanistan? Didn't you think that set up the invasion of, uh, uh, of Ukraine? Okay, having said Come all on, that, man, give me a break. Yeah, <laughs> there's his answer. And that's, but then you then you stay quiet exactly. and make him answer. And he would say that. But Doug, what I'm astounded about, some people really don't see what we see every day, and see of a guy that's older than his age, and his age is 80. Listen, for example, this is a sincere analysis from Mika Brzezinski. You know, I'd, I'd like to know what evidence they have that his age is an issue. What evidence? And she went on for a long rant. What evidence do you have? I mean, that was before he fell upstairs for the second time. Yeah. I, look, there's a lot of it. It's just the visual. And no one, no one relishes this. Look, and, and I, we had talked about this a little bit off air. I mean, I've been a pastor of a, of a senior church. I, I, mean, my, I had a lot of senior adults when I first went there. I've watched these you know, happen. I have my own family members. There's just visual cues that say, look, he's not the 60-year-old Joe Biden anymore. He's not even the 70-year-old Joe Biden. He's slowing down. You watch him shuffle when he walks. It's it's a shuffle. It's not a walk as much as and it's going and it's gotten worse. You saw it the other day on when they were reviewing the troops in Poland. And then he also just sort of veered off of the red carpet that he was on. These are little ideas that say, look, he's getting older. His battles with the teleprompter, in which the teleprompter are winning most of the times, where he's struggling to know names. I mean, these are all issues. He says our friend in Russia. Yeah. He couldn't recall Putin? No, he couldn't recall. But, but also, he's, but think about it, Brian. He's, he's forgotten his name of his own cabinet members. He's been he's been standing by, by governors and people from states. His secretary of defense. Secretary of defense. He, he's a, <laughs> he's huge. He's six six. Yeah, he's a big guy. You know the one over there. You know it was that thing. You know, and, and and those are all things that people do, and we've all done it when we're sort of caught in a situation. You know, sort of you throw off. But when as you get older, you just sort of throw off. Where it also is for me is very interesting. And again, people, the, especially in the press, don't talk about this. His sudden quick turn last week. You know, he gave the his first speech about the. Uh, the balloons and everything else. He turned to walk off very slowly, shuffled his off. They started yelling at him, and he turned around, and instead of taking the question, he did his, his famous, give me a break, and he was pointing at the, you know, it was that, I'm, why are you asking this? I've seen that with people who are, you know, because I think what happens is he can't process that, that, that thought. I mean, look, Trump, Obama, I've, I've said this before, go all the way back to, to Reagan. They all could handle a scrum. He's gotten worse in handling a scrum. He can't do it. Do you believe the political story? Twenty ten seconds that they're really he's not consi- he's not for sure running for your election. I think there's serious consideration. He's not running. Doug Collins will watch you on outnumbered. Uh, you're a, a five tool player. There's nothing you can handle, but you're not a doctor. That's exactly. I learned right. that. No doctor. Brian Kilby show. Keep it here. Don't move. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi everyone, don't waste a minute. Uh, make sure you listen to the Brian Kilmeade show every single ma- uh, every single day. You got the Vice President of the United States, the former Vice President Mike Pence, who wants to be president, I believe, will be announcing his run shortly. And Senator John Kennedy, one of the most insightful, interesting people you will talk to in Washington and Louisiana. So we'll talk about that here at 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. But I know you're listening to me around the country and around the world. So let's get to the big three. 
Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. But I don't read into that that he's thinking of using nuclear weapons or anything like that. I think it's a, I'm not sure what else he was able to say in his speech at the moment. But I think it's a mistake and uh, I'm confident we'll be able to work it out. I mean, it's unbelievable. That's what you said. I didn't listen to the speech. I listened to the speech at four in the morning, and I don't think I'm the president. China, Russia, U.S., and Ukraine. What it all means for world peace. And breaking this morning, the U.S. just announced it'll be sending more troops to Taiwan. I'll break it all down and give you my takeaways from Munich, Warsaw, and Kiev. Number two. To the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania, you are not forgotten. We stand with you, we pray for you, and we... We'll stay with you in your fight to help answer and the accountability that you deserve. That's called showing up. East Palestine welcomes President Trump to town, stealing the spotlight from a tone-deaf White House and a transportation secretary who finally showed up, shamed into doing so, and seeing the remnants of the toxic train in person. Number one. The real problem that they have is that Kamala Harris is not ready for prime time, or daytime for that matter. Uh, Democrats are very nervous to think of her as the runner-up to the Biden presidency if, in fact, he decides he's not going to run. Yeah, that is Kellyanne Conway doing some great analysis. Joe might not go as in run. Some Dems are looking at plan B as it seems the president has not fully committed to re-election. What would that mean for the Democratic field as Republicans have at least three candidates uh, all but ready to declare? We will discuss. Senator John Kennedy, welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. No, so much going on. And can I tap into your foreign policy knowledge first off? Good move to build out Guam, to build out our base in Philippines, and to put additional men on the ground in Taiwan? Oh, we don't have a choice. Uh, we, we do not have a choice. It is clear to me that uh, based on classified and unclassified information, that President Xi of China is quarterbacking all of this chaos. He's working with Putin. He's working with the Ayatollah in Iran. Their goal is to have Russia dominate Central and Eastern Europe. The Ayatollah in Iran dominate the Middle East. And China dominate the Indo-Pacific and Sub-Sahara Africa and be free to make moves into South America. And that is not a world that's safe for democracy. Um, We need to be firm. You know, we've decided to be a bear. As I said yesterday, Brian, I think that's the right move. But if you're going to be a bear, you better be a grizzly. And uh, I think I I, I support this decision. I do, too. However, the the decision against tactic, you have the secretary of state come out and say, we have intelligence that shows that China is looking to give weapons to Russia in their war in Ukraine. But the president doesn't mention it. He also mentioned he didn't even listen to the speech that Vladimir Putin got. So how could – if I'm watching the speech at 4 in the morning and then you get the readout on it, how could he not be watching it? What issue is more important? Well, we, we find ourselves in this position, in my judgment, because of the failed judgment of three of our world leaders. Uh, Putin, for example – I'll start with him. He misjudged the people of Ukraine. She in China misjudged Putin when Putin told him that Putin was going to roll over Ukraine like thunder on a summer night. 
President Biden misjudged both Putin and Xi in China, and we've forgotten this, when, when in the first year or so of his administration, he tried to appease Putin in China. We've forgotten it, but it was President Biden who, who um, suspended the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 that we had put on Nord Stream 2. It was President Biden who shut down the China initiative that the Justice Department had going on. What was that? We were prosecuting professors at universities that were selling intelligence and research to China. President Biden shut that down. It's President Biden who every budget, we ignore them, but every budget he has submitted to Congress has had a defense cut. It was President Biden who immediately upon uh, upon uh, uh, being president cut arms uh, shipments to Ukraine. Now, Putin saw this. She saw this in China. They saw the President uh, Biden's record under President Obama. President Biden didn't even want to go after um, uh, um, um some of the foreign leaders that we were tracking who were who were terrorists, Osama bin Laden being one. And I think Putin and she just said, hey, man, we're, well, this guy is not going to do anything. We're going to make our moves. So President Biden's got a lot of catching up to do. He does. You forgot Afghanistan, which sent a signal to everyone. We don't know what we're doing. You're absolutely right. That was a debacle. Um. And, and, you know, somebody asked me the other day, and I meant it. They said, tell me about President Biden. I said, well, under President Biden, the Taliban got Blackhawks. Unvaccinated Americans got fired. Now, those are just the facts. And she and Putin see all this. And these are hard men. Uh, these are pirates. They're gangsters. I don't want to be in a Cold War or a hot war with them. But we have to, to look reality in the eye and, and, and accept it, not deny it. Absolutely. And of course, Taiwan is just one thing, too. And then you have people here. We have some assets. South Korea gets it. Japan gets it. Vietnam gets it. The Philippines understand it. Our European partners finally realize we're not just we're not this administration, but it's not just a theory that Russia wants to expand. They are actually expanding and threatening. So what what I find myself saying, I I think we have to support action in, in Ukraine. I just am not in support of these people putting together a plan that's going to be effective with who the Ukrainians are going to be able to utilize who clearly want to fight. we got to get them the F-16s. we got to get them the attackums. Get them, replenish them, and let them fight. Because Senator Kennedy, in election year next year, uh, there's going to be 53% in the latest Gallup poll of Republicans support our action there. Do you know how that's going to drop? As we get closer and closer to election, if this continues to be muddled or the Russians can start making progress, it's going to get cut in half rapidly. They got a year to do what they have to do. All good points. I've never seen um, our our, uh, resources that we're sending to Ukraine as an act of charity. I think of it as an act of preservation. But having said that, Brian, we've got to do two things. Number one, Europe's got to do more. Uh, The truth of the matter is that Europe is totally dependent on the United States of America for its defense. And for all the talk out of Germany and President Macron and France, all their tough talk, 
money walks and money money uh, talks and and you know what walks. And now look, they've got to do more. Number two, I've tried to pass a bill. I could pass it if Senator Schumer would bring it to the floor to appoint a special uh, in, inspector general to embed people in Ukraine. Absolutely. We need to follow every American dollar like yep. a hound from hell. Follow it. Make sure it gets to where it is supposed to be going, and it's not stolen. Now we're not we're not doing those latter two, um, and we need to do better there. President Biden needs to be all over those leaders in Europe. He doesn't have to 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 uh, fuss at them publicly, but he needs to call every one of them today and say, "Now look, the American people are doing their part." I want to see you spending not 2%, but 3% of your GDP on defense. We can't carry this burden alone, mm-hmm. but they're letting us. Not That's an overstatement. Uh, Europe has put up some money. We put up about $113 billion. Europeans have put up around $80, 85000000000 billion. But most of, of our money has gone to fight the war. Their money has gone to things like economic support for Ukraine, uh, taking in refugees, and that's all good. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not money well spent, but it's, it's, uh, Europe's got to defend itself, by God. Uh, absolutely. And, and the thing is, Senator, I know it's a tactic. We have this thing where we're going to say what China, we don't want China to do. We're going to say that we know the Russians are going to invade. It didn't stop them from invading. So now we're going to say China, don't arm Russia, I know you're thinking about it. They came back in a, with a belligerent statement. It's not going to stop them, but that's going to be a tactic. But we never call out our allies like the previous president did. People got upset by that, but it worked. And we never call out China. And if you explain to the American people the farmland situation, they're buying up border school and charter schools, the money that's been given to colleges, you list those colleges, and then you turn around and say, we're going to need to build up and bring manufacturing back, and corporations are going to be urged to be more patriotic than, than profit-oriented for this moment. We are all on board. It's a, it's a great political move for them. We will rally to, to take on China uh, economically and militarily if you have the time and respect to explain it to us. Well, facts matter, and here's a fat fact. We had, China's wealthy because of the United States of America. We got China in the World Trade Organization on December 11, 2001. China started cheating December 12th. <laughs> and for 20-plus years, we were all told by every president, be patient with China. They're developing. They'll eventually democratize and, become, and adopt Western values. Well, they didn't. And it was, it was only under President Trump, and you must give him credit for this. It was only under President Trump that President Trump said, enough. Uh, I don't want a hot war with China. I don't want a cold war with China. But you need you people need to become responsible members of a stable world order, and that's all. Amer- that's all I want from them. But the, it it doesn't help any of us to deny the fact that President Xi would steal the hair off your head. Okay, he is interested in one thing and one thing only: his power, and he has proven. And Putin has proven that they both – or they each have a taste for blood. 
Putin yeah. has the taste for blood of Stalin. She has a taste for blood of Mao. And that's just reality. These are hard men. And I say men intentionally because you don't see any women uh, members of the Politburo in China or Russia. These guys are hard men. Right. I'm sure John Kerry would get over there and make them broaden out and give women a chance. That's what he – and make sure they're also using electric cars. So that that's- Well, people like Secretary Kerry, they think they can solve all this with hugs and hot cocoa. I wish it were so. It can't be done. Senator Kennedy, i got to bring you domestically. Yesterday, here's the former president of the United States in Ohio, the site of the toxic train dump. We're here today in East Palestine to show our love and support for our fellow Americans and this hour of need to the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Uh, we have told you loud and clear you are not forgotten. We stand with you, we pray for you, and we We'll stay with you in your fight to help answer. And, and, then, and then he brings in cleaning supplies, Big, Ma- uh, Big Macs. Is it Big Macs? Yeah. Uh, he says he knows the McDonald's menu better than everybody, anybody. I, I believe him. And then he brought in a lot of water. This is what he does best. He, he doesn't care if it's Democrat or Republican. He's going to go where the problem is. And he embarrassed the transportation secretary to go today. And the former president called four people, yes, two days ago uh, from, I guess, Warsaw because he realizes – He's losing this issue, and these people feel abandoned. Where do you stand, Senator Kennedy? Well, the whole the, the whole situation is just terrible, Brian. I mean, I, we all wish it hadn't happened. It did. Um, it is much safer to 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 transport dangerous chemicals when you can by pipelines than by truck or by rail. The rail company will be held responsible. Um, All you can do in a time like this is try to get the mess literally cleaned up and show people that you care. And if I were were president, I'm not, of course, but I would would immediately go to to Ohio and and see my people. You wouldn't check to see if they're Democrats or Republicans? No. Uh, Secretary Buttigieg should be there. The the EPA administrator, I think, has been there. Uh, But what people – we will clean it up by – and first, the the railroad. Uh, It's their responsibility. But in a time like this, I've been through train derailments here in Louisiana. I've, I've been through four hurricanes down here in the past two years, and your presence matters. And you need to, to be with your people and say, look, I, I care, and we're going to help you. You're not going to go through this alone. I know. Do you have you real quick, the Secretary of Transportation, biggest disappointment Democrats have had, the guy just doesn't want to work. Well, he's running for president. I mean, that's pretty clear that, that uh, the Secretary Buttigieg is running for president. I don't know whether President Biden's going to run or not. He says he is. We'll see. Well, uh, but there's no doubt in my mind that, that uh, the secretary is running for president. And gotcha. at the first opportunity, he'll go. Senator Kennedy, I should pay you for your appearances, but you wouldn't be allowed to accept the money. It's an ethics violation. Thank you so much. Hey, Brian, you're what cool looks like, man. A talk show that's real. 
This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. So there's a growing sentiment, I think, out there from people that, you know, look, he'd be 82 if he runs for re-election. If he serves all four years, he'd be 86. It, it would draw a lot of attention to Kamala Harris mm. because people would say to themselves, if something bad happens to him, who's next in line? And his numbers aren't great. Hers are terrible. Yeah. So I, I've long thought that there's a good chance that at the end of the day he might not run. I have to admit, in the last couple of months, there's been a lot out of the Biden camp about how he is going to run. But... Um, you know, there's a long way between now and when he really needs to get into the race, and there's still time for him to make a decision not to. Yeah, I mean, he does. He can wait, if, but if uh, that's only if he can assure people that he's going to run. Because if not, they got to get their machines going. And who would run if he doesn't? Well, what they say is Governor Murphy of New Jersey ready to go. They say the digital, uh, the digital campaign and the digital units with Gavin Newsom would be pretty strong. Amy Klobuchar still thinks she's popular, which blows me away. All these people who have failed, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, think that they still have a shot. As it has to be somebody that comes out of left field. Because everybody I mentioned is so brutally flawed. And as you just heard, Senator Kennedy thinks that people are just running for president. Why? Because he failed so badly, so precipitously as a mayor and transportation secretary. At one point, you have to have some success. And I'm not seeing the success yet. I mean, is the governor of Maryland, is that the success story you need? Is this Governor Shapiro going to be a moderate? Because that's what's going to win a general if you're a Democrat. Radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade. It's my privilege to bring on one of our great guests, Mike Pence, the 48th Vice President of the United States, who might very well be a, a candidate for president next time we speak. Mr. Vice President, welcome back. Congratulations on the success of your book. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Brian. It is great to be back on. And uh, yeah, we've been very. Uh, very humbled by the response to my autobiography, so help me God. And I, I want to thank you for giving us such a great start on it. it well, I mean, you did a great to tell my story. It's yeah, great to be back on with you. And also, you, um, you had a chance to tell a very, very compelling stories. The last time we saw you in office was the, the drama around January sixth, and then you showed up at the inauguration, and the, and the president said, "No, I'm out of here. I'm going to go out for." And he, of course, since that time. He left with paperwork to Mar-a-Lago. They want it back. They negotiated. That ends up being a problem. You said, hey, I got some classified papers. You want to come check it out? They took that. So and, and one, that's not why you did it, but that also helped sell the book. So to get inside what Mike Pence was doing uh, over the last few years, people wanted to get the inside story, and you gave that. So there's a lot of news breaking around your autobiography. Would you agree? Well, there, there was. And, you know, look, the American people – the American people have every right to know what happened at the close of our administration. But as I shared with you, Brian, I mean, one of the things I'm proud of with the book, So Help Me God, is that we it's been described as the most fulsome defense of the Trump Pence record that's been put in print. And I know there's been other books out, but I'm I'm grateful for that because, you know, while we had 
you know, the end of the administration was challenging, and I'm candid about that. Uh, but uh, I couldn't be more proud of the record of the Trump-Pence administration, a strong national defense, a growing economy, energy independence, border security, conservatives on our course that laid a foundation for a new beginning for life. And, and I also think that in contrast with the failed leadership uh, of the Biden administration at home uh, and abroad, now more than ever, we ought to reflect on, on the days of our administration where we really delivered for the American people and how it lights the way uh, to bring our nation all the way back. So if you're president or vice president and one of your cabinet secretaries is not performing or performing uh, or, or performing in a, a way that doesn't reflect possible, is it up to you uh, and leadership to go, guys, uh, there was a plane crash. There was there was a there was wildfires. There was a tornado. Uh, there was a hurricane. There was a tsunami. We have to go. I mean, is it incumbent on the president to tell the secretary of transportation to show up at a toxic train derailment? It's not only incumbent on the president, it's incumbent on his senior team. But look, you ought to have people on your cabinet who know what to do. Uh, You know, I'm a lead from the front guy. And uh, when I was governor of Indiana, when the tornadoes had tear through our state, when there were flooding incidents, I just I I got in the car and got there because a leader, you you don't know what you don't know. When you you get on the ground, you know you, you can make things happen. And the idea that uh, not only has President Biden gone three weeks without, you know, virtually paying any mind to this this disastrous derailment in East Palestine, but that the Secretary of Transportation waits three weeks uh, to, to even go as families are living through the not only the, the melee and the aftermath, but the, the ongoing anxiety about it. To me, it's just unconscionable uh, and and represents really – you know, I, I think this this administration has been, you know, absent without leadership in East Palestine, uh, absent without leadership on the southern border with crime in our cities. But make no mistake about it. And, and I, I said this to Martha yesterday uh, after you went off the air on TV, Brian. I said, look, uh, the, 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 the Biden administration derailed the economy of East Palestine before that train ever came through. This is cold country. And when you look at the war on energy that this administration has launched, particularly against coal, they have literally decimated uh, the futures of families in places like East Palestine. And, and, and all of that, again, taking the country in the wrong direction, but to not be there, to have cabinet officials not know that they're supposed to be there, uh, it, it, it's just absent without leadership. And the American people know we can do better. So do you think that politics plays a role in it when 70 percent of the, the vote went to Donald Trump and Mike Pence and 8 uh, percent and you guys won Ohio twice by eight points? Do you believe that that plays a role in the fact that no one showed up for a week and that was the EPA director? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, honestly, you know, it was it was a catastrophic train wreck. Uh, and at least I know one of the tankers had, you know, highly volatile chemicals on it that made its way into the rivers and the water stream. I, I, it's incomprehensible. I promise you that had that happened under the Trump-Pence administration, we would have deployed people, resources. Uh, FEMA would have been on the ground that day. EPA would have been on the ground that day. And uh, and as we did over and over again, right. if the president wasn't headed that way, they would have tapped me on the shoulder uh, to head that way. And uh, but again, uh, I, I don't I don't know what the drop ball is. Uh, you, you point to those political 
demographic realities. But but so why why did it take uh, more than two years for President Joe Biden to go to the border for crying out loud? I mean, look, I was pleased to see President Biden uh, standing in Kiev and expressing our support to give the Ukrainian people what they need uh, to defeat the Russian military. It's an enormously important fight. I'm going to speak about it when I'm in Houston this coming Friday. But bottom line, President Biden should have gone to East Palestine before he went to Kiev, and he should have gone to the southern border a year ago before he went to Poland the first time. So yesterday, the the former president, the, the your running mate, he's, you're his running mate, vice versa, went down yep. uh, to Palestine, and he was received well. He didn't even have the kids go to school. Uh, he saluted the people that are showing up just helping out. One of it is Blue Line Moving and John Rourke. He went on with Tucker last night to talk about what it was like on the ground with President Trump, cut 19. These people need help. We're putting illegal aliens in hotels and five-star accommodations in New uh. York City, and the people of East Palestine can't even get a real hotel to stay in for a significant amount of time or some real money that they can actually go maybe and get their own VRBO or something like that, somewhere where they can actually take a month and get away from the town and get away from breathing in that nasty air and having to see hundreds of workers. Every river, every tributary has hoses in it and aerators in it, and they're spraying water into these rivers, and who knows where the water's coming from. And he went on to say this, cut 18. The folks there are a whole lot more motivated than they were at this time yesterday. And that's a fact. Um, The fact that President Biden has refused to come to this small town when he's supposed to be Scranton Joe, a small town hero of the working man, and he can't even show his face in a town of American citizens that need his leadership, that need the government's help terribly. And he proved um, what everybody I think already knew in this country is that he's not the leader for this country and that Donald J. Trump is the leader that we all know he is, and he is the leader of this country. And he proved that today. That was leadership um, that I saw today. I saw people standing on the streets screaming for this man, chanting, USA, USA. And this is President Trump at his best. Your your reflection? Well, I, I, I agree with you. I think it was marvelous that uh, the president went there. Uh, and, and in a very real sense, I think our election in 2016, 10 million more votes in 2020, was because there's a whole lot of Americans that feel forgotten, feel forgotten by Washington elites. And this is a, this brings it into high relief, doesn't it, Brian? That you you literally have a train derailment, great anxiety uh, for families. All as I pointed out, already in an area beset. Uh, by the Biden administration's war on energy economically, and and they're just forgotten. And so, yeah, I I, uh, I commend the president for traveling there, but I just it, to me it's part of a larger picture. I just think this is an administration uh, that has been absent without leadership, whether it be a China spy balloon floating across strategic areas of the United States, uh, whether it be a mountain range of debt. Uh, that's 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 uh, that's taking our nation toward a debt crisis in the decades ahead where where the president has decided, look, President Joe Biden's policy is insolvency. He said, we're just not going to do anything about any of the major issues facing the country. Uh, and and all the while, I, again, I want to say to you, I was pleased to see the president in Kiev. Um, I, I stand strongly behind the principle of the Reagan doctrine that we ought if, if you're willing to fight. If you're willing to fight the adversaries 
uh, of the United States, the adversaries of freedom. We'll give you the means to fight them so we don't have to fight them. But doggone it, uh, when, when you're ignoring folks at home, when you're forgetting people at home at the point of the need, whether it's the border or in East Palestine, it undermines confidence mm-hmm. in our ability to be the leader of the free world. And, and Mr. Vice President, I don't have to tell you, we fought World War II, but we still had to get, have our economy thriving through the Iraq War. George right. Bush actually had the economy growing. Uh, through Vietnam, you had to fight a war where we had 500,000 troops overseas, but we still had to keep things going domestically. You don't have the option yeah. of choosing one, and any president should be able to do both. I think that's a folly of an argument. So I hear if China gives Russia arms, there's going to be consequences. If Mike Pence is president, what would those consequences be to China? Look, we, uh, our administration changed the national consensus on China. I mean, you know that, Brian. You've spoken about it many times. We, For 20 years before that, we, we thought expanded trade, expanded exchange with China, that they, they, would, they would recognize uh, religious liberty, private property, freedom of speech. But in fact, they've become more authoritarian. We put into place hundreds of, of billions of dollars in tariffs. That, that I'm, I'm at least pleased that uh, among all the policies they've undone, the Biden administration is not yet undone. Uh, but we ought to be doing more. We ought to be ratcheting up more economic pressure. We ought to be continuing to invest and deploy uh, our military in the Asia Pacific. The antidote is strength. Uh, and I, I promise you, I have I have stood and looked Vladimir Putin in the eye. I've stood and looked President Xi in the eye. These these are two authoritarian leaders that only understand strength. Uh, and if you want to influence uh, the progress of history between those two nations or the history of freedom in the world, the antidote is American strength. So and I've been thought, thinking a lot about this. You and President Trump, I've seen it uh, in front of the camera, behind the camera. Even though you're so opposite, you worked extremely well together. And I just was wondering if you ever thought if we the pres- if the president of the United States didn't have the rally on January 6th and just said, I'm going to have my lawyers check out these controversial states and let the chips fall where they may. And you guys just went your separate ways and it was time to run for re-election right now. Do you believe you'd be running together and you would not say this is the time for Mike Pence to run for president? You know, I, I, I would tell you, I think uh, I think running for vice president of the United States twice is enough for any American. <laughs> it was and it was my great privilege, Brian. And as Karen and I give prayerful consideration, oh, so you wouldn't have done it. You wouldn't have done it again. Serve the country. Well, I, I think for us, it's uh, it's what has the, the course of my life, by God's grace, prepared us for. I've served for 12 years in Congress. I was in leadership. I led the state of Indiana as governor uh, to, to record record unemployment, balanced budgets. And I had the great privilege of serving as vice president of the United States in a time of great strength and prosperity for the country. And, uh, and as I said, honestly, I, I believe no one could have defeated Hillary Clinton in 2016 uh, other than Donald Trump. Uh, and, uh, and, and I was proud to campaign with him, proud to serve with him. But I think, I think different times call for different leadership. So you'd be running anyway. Uh, and we're, yeah. we're reflecting on, we're reflecting now on whether our brand of, of uh, consistent conservatism mm-hmm. uh, with a special, with a special emphasis on uh, trying to express ourselves in a way that might 
have the chance of uniting our right. country around our highest ideals is an idea and an approach whose time has come. But we'll we'll promise to keep you posted on our plans. Right. Brian. Would, would you say this spring you're going to make a decision either way or is it just, it's going to be a deep summer thing? Because we know the first debate is July. Oh, I, I think uh, I think uh, I think by this spring we'll have a very clear sense of what our calling is. I'm continuing to travel around the country, continuing to get a lot of encouragement around the country. Look, the American people know we can do better. Right. I'm confident Republican primary voters uh, are going to choose well, and uh, we'll decide right. whether we want to be on the list of people they choose among. But I have no doubt in my mind that we're going to turn this country around. We're going to get it all back because of the failed policies mm -hmm. uh, of the Biden gotcha. administration. The American people know we can do better, and La we will. Last topic you have not discussed yet. Uh, Kevin McCarthy yeah. gave Tucker Carlson all the tapes, thousands of hours of tapes on January 6th. You were in the middle of it. You were threatened sure. by it. We understand that. Do you want to yeah. see what's in those tapes? Well, I think, look, I believe in the public's right to know. Uh, and I commend Speaker Kevin McCarthy for his commitment to transparency. I mean, January 6th was a tragic day. But you only have uh, one point of view, your view. Do you want to see what yeah. exactly was happening? Because there's a lot we of things out there about, yeah. you know, people just coming up with maybe rumors or fact we don't know about the FBI pushing this forward. That there were people infiltrated in there. You've heard all the rumors. Do you, would you like to know? Well, I'd like to know. I think the American people have a right to know. I wrote my story of that day. We stayed at our post uh, because of the courage of law enforcement that day. We quelled the riot. We reconvened the same day. And I'll always believe we did our duty under the Constitution. But the American people have, have the right to all the information and uh, and to better understand exactly where the failings were, uh, the, the scope of the violence that took place that day. Because all of us, whatever our perspective in this country, want to make sure it never happens again. Gotcha. So you're, you're for doing that. Mike Pence, uh, you bet. Mr. Vice President, thanks so much. Best of luck with your big decision. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me on, Brian. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And you used to do this, too, for a living. You used to be a radio host, uh, talk show host. Back in a moment, Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in. I just, I kind of just thought that it? would be an awesome moment. Yeah, wouldn't that be? It's so fun. They were not talking about an 11th grade class. We're talking about somebody in her 20s in charge of a jury that could indict the former president of the United States who wants to be the next president of the United States. How unbelievably damaging is that to the case against Donald Trump manipulating an election as he's been accused by some? And to Rudy Giuliani, who you want to indict, or Lindsey Graham, who you want to uh, put through the ringer, or anybody else, Sidney Powell, whoever else called down there. So to me, that giggly little girl who thinks she's doing a TikTok video, should not be in control of our next election. I think you can back me on that. And just like the president's use of classified information nullifies any type of indictment on Mar-a-Lago, bar none, because I could compare and contrast him to him blue in the face, and they keep coming. I'm telling you right now, 
These are two things that are breaking in the former president's direction. He's got that in a pure political play in New York that nobody thinks is worthy of anybody's time. So this is something that eventually is going to break in. Even if they end an indictment, it's going to be challenged and tossed out. That's not how you stop somebody from running for president. Not with that four-woman Brian Kilmeade show. Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. We come to you live from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, heard around the world. Watching a lot of things happening today. We know the President of the United States is going is heading back. We know, too, the House Judiciary Committee has taken their committee meeting to the border in Tucson. Excuse me, I should say Yuma. And a lot of Democrats go, I can't believe this, this show thing, this is just sensationalism. No, it's a huge problem. How do we get people's attention on it? And if you're going to debate it and try to solve it, isn't it great to see it? I think it makes total sense. And I would love to see Democrats show up and say, I, I do see the problem. Maybe you have different ideas of how to fix it. Bottom of the hour, somebody who could be a presidential candidate soon, Governor Chris Sununu. Who knows? My guest to my immediate right might be a presidential candidate in the future, John <laughs> Taffer. Before we go, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. But I don't read into that that he's thinking of using nuclear weapons or anything like that. I think it's, uh, I'm not sure what else he was able to say in his speech at the moment. But I think it's a mistake, and uh, I'm confident we'll be able to work it out. I know you think they woke him in the middle of the night to give that statement. He was actually standing. Uh, China, Russia, the U.S. and Ukraine, what it all means for world peace. And breaking this morning, the U.S. announcing it will be sending more troops to Taiwan. I'll break it all down and give you my takeaways from Munich, Warsaw, and Kiev. Number two. To the people of East Palestine and to the nearby communities in Ohio and Pennsylvania, you are not forgotten. We stand with you, we pray for you, and we will stay with you in your fight to help answer and the accountability that you deserve. East Palestine welcomes former President Trump to town. Stealing the spotlight from a tone-deaf White House as Transportation Secretary Buttigieg is kind of shamed into showing up today. We'll give you the details. Number one. The real problem that they have is that Kamala Harris is not ready for prime time, or daytime for that matter. Uh, Democrats are very nervous to think of her as the runner-up to the Biden presidency if, in fact, he decides he's not going to run. Right, and that's the problem. They're more nervous about the vice president than the president, who is 80 and looks every day of it. Joe might not go, as in run. Some Dems are looking at plan B, as he seems uh, seems the president is not fully committed to re-election. What would that mean for the Democratic field as Republicans have at least three candidates all but ready to declare, and three are already in, including the former president? John Taffer, I know uh, as uh, you're pumped up for the new season of Bar Rescue, uh, it is Sundays at 10 o'clock on the Paramount Network, uh, starting February 26th, and we do have a clip of that. But I also know you love politics. I do. You know that. It's competition. It's almost like sports. It is. And this is, do you think it's more than spring training right now? I think it's a little more than spring training right now. I think that people need to up their communications game in very, very many ways, and we'll see that happen these next few months as, as more players step to the plate, if you will. Right. But, but, you know, I, I don't see any solid messaging coming out of anybody right now. I don't see any phrasing coming out of anybody. Nothing's rooting yet, but it's early. You know, I, I laugh when people say, well, the transportation secretary doesn't have any direct transportation experience. And uh, the HUD director was once a brain surgeon, the last one. And, um, you know, I understand the secretary of state 
does have to have experience. But for these other departments, to me, is it fundamental management skills with experts around you? I know you've never maybe put a train back on its tracks, but if you show up with people that do and you understand what the problems is going in by being on the ground and seeing things in uh, in person, don't you believe that that's 70 percent to solving the problem, if not more? Oh, absolutely, Brian. And also, I think that I'm if I was that person and I know nothing about a, a train crash, going there, asking questions, be a part of the solutions. I probably bring something to the table without any knowledge of a train crash. So to say that I bring nothing to the table, I have nothing to add to it concerns me. Also, when you look at a cabinet post, I don't want them learning on my dime. I'd rather have somebody who has business experience, commerce experience, transportation experience, trade experience, stepping into that role. So they step in running, not walking. And I think we're seeing lack of experience in some of these ways. Maybe good intent, but bad experience. Right, because we hear the term, and I don't want to get you in trouble with equity. We need to fill a gap. We need to fill a slot rather than just get me the best man or woman. That's correct, especially when Don't you think it's hurting our country? I do think it hurts our country to some degree. I also think it's demotivating to some people who who are fighting for opportunities uh, 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 that are very, very important to them personally, Brian. Uh, But I I think that that what we're seeing today is we're seeing uh, uh, standards being reduced to facilitate uh, 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 what they think the population can handle. Brian, if I ran a business that way, if I said I'm going to reduce the standards in my restaurant so it takes an hour and a half to get a meal, I'm going to reduce the standards... I'd be out of business. So we as a society are not going to get anywhere if we keep reducing standards. We have to raise standards. And the thing is, we've got to compete. Uh, for example, you're in the restaurant you know, You're in the restaurant business, maybe the most successful, knowledgeable restaurant person from a practical uh, standpoint. You could teach any course at any university about it. But there's something, there's something about competing through that restaurant across the street, competing for the customer that is purely American. Absolutely. You give me a chance to perform. You show up in my place. I'll give you a good time. And if not, I'll fix it. If we lose that at the at the foundation, if we stop with having honors classes for the smarter kids, if we stop giving awards to the MVPs, if we stop giving scholarships uh, to people that earn it like what's happening in Virginia, I think that rakes at the fabric of our country. I don't think that's a minor choice. I think that's a major thing. People have to huge. be told to compete. I think greatness should always be rewarded. Greatness is being diminished now when you think about it. But our country has become what we've become because of great people who elevated themselves and the people around them. You see, I believe that people can elevate other people. I don't believe governments can elevate people. That's Mm -hmm. the difference. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I just think the government gets out of the way, lets people compete. You regulate to keep the playing field fair, but you cannot negotiate outcomes. You know, I I just – to me, uh, yesterday on The Five, we were doing this story about how in Los Angeles they got rid of all A-track, honors track, because they said there was too many Asians. They make up 16 percent of the uh, of the student body, but 40 percent of the people in the honors. And then the not enough African-Americans weren't represented, but it's done on math, science, reading. Those are hardcore scores. That, to me, is not a minor story. 
That's a big story. So what are we doing to elevate these groups of people who are underperforming? How do we focus on elevating them, not diminishing the success of those who succeed? It's a tough balance. I get that we need to have the underserved people served better. I get that we need to get uneducated people more educated. We have to lift them somehow. But lifting one can't be at the expense of another always, Brian. Mm-hmm. And that's the point that we're at, is one person's success can't cost the next person's success. We need to rise together. Right. And I just think, uh, I mean, fundamentally, that's what you do in your show in Bar Rescue. Guys compete. What are you doing wrong? Well, uh, are you are you giving away the bar? How are you pouring your drinks? What are you doing for speed? What are you doing for cleanliness more than anything else? How are you serving your customers? What's this place look like? Who's your competition? What does it mean to you be successful? What does success look like? I mean, fundamentally, when we watch Bar Rescue, you go out of your way to make it a real slice of life. You don't say, take it from the top, I'm going to come in angrier. That's not the way John Taffer works. No, they set the tone. If they're confrontational, I'm confrontational. If they're not, I'm not. But you know, I go in to help them, Brian. You know, people forget that, that in this Sunday's episode, it's a guy married, two sons working in a business. He's in debt hundreds of thousands of dollars. He's about to lose his house. And he had five double cocktails at 8.30 before I even got there. So this is a real problem. This business is not going to succeed until he does. So it's an intense episode of confrontation. But, Brian, every In fact, family- you want to, we'll, we'll roll a clip of that. I think you just described the clip that I we did. have. Yep. Joe, enjoy that because yeah. that's the last drink you're going to have while I'm here. Because let me tell you what I've learned, Joe, because I've been sitting outside with your wife for a half hour watching that's you. That's why they didn't get the drinks. If she was here, they would have got their drinks. Her drink is awful. She spit it out. You didn't even notice she was sitting right there. I didn't she make spit it. it out. But it's your business. Her drink sucked. Okay. And where the f*** was she at? She's supposed to be behind the bar. She was talking to me about your drinking exactly. problem. Well, I don't have a drinking problem. You don't have a drinking problem. How many drinks have you had today, Joe? I had four doubles. Four doubles. And a couple of shots. Your wife is begging you to sober up and save your house. She should have been behind the bar. She should teach the bartenders how to bartend. And you should do nothing but drink. I was cooking. And you, should, was you cooking. weren't cooking. You were yeah. sitting here drinking. I was on break. I didn't know owners took breaks. Classic failure denial. You know, Brian, sometimes these people own businesses and, you know, they wipe out their parents' retirement account. They should have closed six months ago, but they never do. Because when you close, you're admitting failure. And they will never admit failure. So they keep losing their parents' money along the way. It's a slow motion train wreck. Absolutely. And that's what was going on with this family. He wouldn't admit failure. So everything was an excuse. And he was drinking his family to poverty. So believe it or not, that's one of the most intense episodes we've ever done. Wait till you see the end of it. Boy, does he turn around. It's amazing. You don't drink. No. But yet you've been in clubs and bars your whole life. I have. Um, it's the toughest thing. Like when you say someone's lazy or they're overzealous or they're too uh, autocratic, but when someone's got a drinking problem, do you ever feel like, oh, my goodness, I really can't touch this. I could just pull him or her out. I can't fix it. Yeah, I try, and I get counselors in and stuff, but that's a you very do. difficult thing to fix. Yeah, there have been a number of episodes where we brought counselors in, and I've really tried to help them long-term, and we have. Because when a desire is there, we'll, we'll invest in counselors and such, even after we leave, to help support them through that transition. But, you know, as a bar owner, Brian, I always felt somebody had to be responsible in a room. Somebody right. had to be sober to look out for everybody in the room. So I was a very responsible bar owner in that way. Right, and, and you know, I, I was talking to somebody, too, that owns a comedy club all right, in Manhattan. And he said, I never had a drink in my life. I go, really? You've been in clubs your whole life. You were managing them, doing it. Now you get your own place. You know you want to have two drink minimum, and you never get tempted to, like, have a drink and hang out. Is it because sometimes you see where the drinks can lead? 
like moderation is a rarity or you know i think if i was a pharmacist i wouldn't do the drugs right <laughs> and as a barman liquor is for see, selling well you see for selling. me it's for selling i don't see myself as a consumer i see myself as a seller when we come back the mood in the restaurant business now is fascinating you mentioned this to me i don't know if it was on tv or off about the mood today coming out of COVID. You were there before when it was everything was raging. You were there when everything was destroyed. I would argue that the restaurant business has been hurt harder than anything else for 14 months. And then you're there for the reclamation project. What we're seeing now, that the plexiglass is down, uh, that the tables are back, and that the masks are off. What does John Taffer see about America's economy uh, uh, on the blue-collar side? Don't move. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back. John Taver's got a brand new season of Bar Rescue. Uh, when can we see this, John? The season starts Sundays at 10 o'clock on the Paramount Network. Yes. But I see them all the time. They're running your shows all the time. Yeah, but they're, we're on weekdays in the morning on Paramount, and we have our marathons on Sunday. So, yeah, uh, we're on a lot, but it, it's a great feeling to have so many people watch us every Where week. do you go? You go to, I see, California, Colorado. California, Colorado, Idaho, South Carolina. And Florida, I believe. You also use one of my favorite people. Not that I'm great friends with her like you are, but Maria Menounos was in the news lately. Uh, they had a surrogate. They have a kid. Yep. yep. Uh, but you use her how in this series? She's one of my dear friends, and I brought her in as a spy originally, Brian, about six years ago. That night, she drank a cocktail. The mix had expired four years earlier, so she almost threw up. Then she ate food, went home that night, and got sick. So she calls me up. She says, that's it. I'll never be your friend again. I'm sick as a dog. Never call me for bar rescue again. So, of course, she was teasing. We're dear friends. I've gotten her to do it four times since, and she's become one of my greatest spies. How do people not recognize her? Well, you know, she puts on a ball cap sometimes. She doesn't put on her makeup. She's in jeans, and you don't, you don't get to see her very often dressed that Would way. Would you see her in the first episode? You'll see her this Absolutely, week? Absolutely, you'll see her. So she you, can you give me an idea what she does? So she's going to go in with her husband, Kevin Undergar, and a couple of wrestlers. And they're going to go in the bar. They're going to order some drinks, order some food, and uh, tell me what they think. And she has a couple words with the owner as well. Okay. Not to give it too much away. Not to give too much away. I think, the, I think the times in the van when you're watching is, to me, the most entertaining because you're seeing people unaffected. And you know, have no idea they're taping. No. They have no idea you're taping them. Yep. I tell you, one of my greatest moments ever in that van, I've never told you this story, was that I, had, I did a bar in Southern California, and the husband wasn't coming home till 5, 6 in the morning, was cheating on the wife, and that was the story. So I said, let the wife do recon with me in a car. So the wife gets in the car. She's got a gift bag in her hand. And I say, what's the gift for? She goes, it's my 14th anniversary. I said, oh, is that for your husband? She goes, yes. I said, what did you get him? She goes, divorce papers. And that's how the episode started. Wow. Oh, my. <laughs> like, okay. So you never know what you're going to get in Bar Rescue. It's as real as real can be. How's the economy doing uh, from what you see? And how do you characterize the owners you're working with? I say uh, uh, pensive, if you will, scared, stung, if you will. You know, we're fighting costs. The business is out there. Customers are coming back. Many restaurants are running 20% over pre-pandemic levels. But? But can't get employees. The employees we get are leaving all the time. We can't get kitchen help. They're coming and going constantly. Costs are going up. And what people don't quite realize, Brian, is, you know, chicken wings are up over a dollar a piece. If I pay a dollar for a chicken wing, I got to sell it for three dollars. So that means six chicken wings are going to cost you nineteen dollars. 
in a restaurant. It's a challenge to keep our prices in line, to provide value, but supermarkets have gone so much, up so much in inflation, that restaurants are still a good value. Right. So people go out to eat and not say this is a luxury we can't afford. You could say this is really comparable because I put up these numbers, uh, the average I guess from eleven and eight dollars, it yep. seems like it's cheaper to go out to eat than ever before. I have a, I have an example. I want to show, throw something at you. Uh, Nettie's House of Spaghetti, a restaurant in Tinton Falls, New Jersey, is banning children under ten from dining in the establishment. "Quote: Between the noise levels, lack of space for high chairs, cleaning up crazy messes, and the liability of kids running around, we have decided it's time to take control of the situation." Would that be something John Taffer recommended? I would never recommend that. Why? Well, first of all, Spaghetti House is a family concept. Right. I mean, spaghetti is a whole. I just don't think that you would do that. Now, if this was a fine dining restaurant, a white tablecloth, fine dining check average of two hundred and fifty dollars. Sure. I wouldn't want children running around. But this sounds like a family spaghetti restaurant to me. And that doesn't seem like the right move. Also, I was curious to see the subscription things going on with restaurants now. Yeah. Tell me about this concept. So if I pay for Taffer's Tavern and I say if I sign for a subscription to you, one hundred and forty dollars gets me a meal from you because I love your place. Mm-hmm. It gets delivered to my house. Mm-hmm. And it's cheaper than if I went to your restaurant. Correct. Well, how does that help a restaurant? Well, first of all, it gives me the cash flow ahead of time, which is a really, really important thing. You're billing me every month, whether and, and, I take it or not. Correct. And I'm getting built-in revenues that I can anticipate ahead of time, which is pretty terrific. If it snows that day, I'm still getting paid. Mm-hmm. If customers don't come that night, I'm still getting paid. I don't have the front of the ha- house labor service right. and all that pressure upon me. That's why I can charge less. Yep. But, you know, gift cards are a similar way to do that. What people don't know about gift cards is about 30% of all gift cards are never redeemed. So a restaurant, in theory, if they sold a bunch of gift cards, would be picking up cash that you're not rendering any services for. That's a, that's a good move, too. So you like this innovative way to earn money. Yeah. I mean, for the restaurant I'm invested in at Publicans, yeah. uh, when they got shut down, you were in there. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, what about doing some takeout business? They go, we don't really do that. Well, during the pandemic, they did it. And the people pitched in to help them. And they would order. And now it's going. Now they have a takeout business. They didn't know it existed. Yeah. So takeout is something else could be fine revenue. You can't just shut it off and go, not my people. This is I'm not a takeout place. No, you have to seize the market opportunity that's before you, certainly. But, you know, Brian, some of these subscriptions are dining in the restaurant, too. So let's say there's a high-demand restaurant here in New York. You can't get a table. So for $140 a month, you're guaranteed one Thursday a month. You're guaranteed your table is there, your meal is there. It's an interesting opportunity in a high-demand market mm-hmm. to pre-sell reservations, almost like a theme park does. I always thought – I did think the labor was coming back. That is not the case? A little bit. It is coming back a little bit, but it's concerning. You know, seven years ago, if I went to the National Restaurant Association convention, there were four robotic booths. Today, there's over 100. Wow. The robotics are taking over the industry because it's filling a need. If we don't have employees, we have to solve it through robotics. Right. We thought it would be the other way, employees being forced out. But now since employees don't show up, it makes it easier to make that transition. We're forcing in the technology, really. Right. But you always need that smile in the front of the house, I thought. Season 8 of Bar Rescue, check it out. Sundays at 10 o'clock on the Paramount Network beginning this week, February 26th. John Taffer, always a privilege. Good to see you, buddy. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm hearing the president's job performance increasing. He's now at 49% among registered voters, and uh, according to the latest Marist poll, 
voters really complimented him on his trip to Kiev. He's focused on business. He's focused on the economy. He's not focused on running. We have 92% of Democrats who like Joe Biden, 86% of Democrats who approve of the job he's doing, and a majority, as you're showing here, who think Biden should be the nominee. 92% of Democrats don't even like the 4th of July. This is remarkably united, and we're ready to run with Joe Biden and proud of his record and ready to finish the job. Sadly, I believe the 92% don't like the 4th of July. With me right now is Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. Governor, he seems like the greatest president ever, according to a Democratic pollster, Celinda Lake. Is he on a roll? Is he on a roll? Well, can we just deal with the 4th of July? Uh, <laughs> what is this? I don't like the 4th of July. No, holy cow. What is going on in this country? No, Joe Biden is not on a roll. Uh, Joe Biden, I, you know, he went over to Ukraine. He seemed to, you know, bolster up, I think, confidence over there. Great. Good. Good job. That's your job. That's, that's fantastic. Um, go go to Ohio. You tell me if Joe Biden in the administration is on a roll. Go talk to real people. This this is a a, a, a a management style that thinks that just by having more left-wing policies, you're going to be okay. And so, yeah, I get it. When you're in that position and, uh, you know, most of your party really doesn't want you to run, you're going to pull out any data point you can to, to try to take a short-term win because the first two years have, have not gone so well for Joe. I mean, let's let's be honest. But the midterms, I think, gave him a different message. Uh, yeah, well, I got to be honest. Uh, look, I think the midterms should have given Republicans a different message. The midterms should have told Republicans candidate quality matters. Joe Biden didn't win the win midterms. Republicans nominated bad candidates, and we and they we allowed Democrats to paint us as extreme, even when some of them weren't all that extreme, but mo- many of them were, and they lost. And and America is, is frustrated because they want they want results driven leadership. They want competency in there. They don't just want to be uh, on the right side of policy. They need to know that there's going to be individuals there to, that will actually follow through and get the job done. And Republicans did a bad job of uh, I think connecting with voters on what really mattered. And we forgot to ask voters the most important poll question of all: Are you pissed off? Are you really ticked off at the attitude, at the lack of, 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 of things moving? It wasn't just about policy with the American voters. So let's not give Joe Biden any credit on 22. Let's take a little ownership ourselves. I know you told me that uh, – I think you said it on camera uh, – that you, you don't think that Governor DeSantis uh, – for example, people are ticked off, and he was going in there maybe satisfying their anger, and also I'm not saying he was inauthentic, but going in there and looking at CRT – and looking get rid of these woke programs that say you can pick your gender by, uh, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, sexual gender in third uh, up through first through third grade or through primary school. And he went in there and says that's going to change, and we're not going to have CRT in our schools, and we're not going to put it on AP exams. You don't believe a governor should be doing that, correct? Well, no, let's be clear. Look, you got to push back on the woke stuff. Absolutely. No, and especially in public schools, those are those are those are government run, right? And in New Hampshire in particular, they run locally that we don't, you know, kind of dictate from above uh, what you go in there. So you have to have those battles. I'm a believer that it's the parents that have to be winning those battles at the local level because parents connect with the teachers, they connect with the curriculum, they connect, they hire and fire the school boards. So, I mean, I don't mind, I mean, having that, but it's, it's really with the private businesses where I say you got to have a clear line. A private business, there's lots of businesses in New Hampshire that might be left-wing and liberal and politically don't, you know, care so much for the conservative values of Chris Sununu. That's okay. It's a private business, right? Let the free market 
take care of it. I'm a principled free market conservative, and I'm, I think we just have to get back to the basics of understanding the limits of government power. I'm a local control guy. I'm a limited government guy. Um, if we're trying to beat the Democrats at big government trying to fix culture, that, that never works. It, it, government is not here to fix culture. That has to happen from, from a community parent individual level, which is why, you know, we focus so much on those individual freedoms. So and, and, and schools are the, the purview of government. So you have to understand where that is. Like, like I said, in New Hampshire, it, it's driven at a local level, a little more than a state level, maybe in Florida to the state level or in New Mexico, it's wherever. Right. So you got to kind of pull the levers you can pull, understanding the limits of, um, of that responsibility. In New Hampshire, do they have an option of going public or private with the money afforded them by public school money? For example, yeah. in, I guess it's eight thousand uh, dollars in oh, was it uh, in Iowa? Eight thousand dollars you get, and they could decide to but they did eight thousand dollars and go private. Can you do that yeah. in New Hampshire? Yeah, yeah. We I passed school choice uh, about two years ago. We thought a few hundred families would do it. Thousands jumped in. It is awesome, and we're expanding it. I, in this, my budget this year, we're we're expanding it. Um, so you know, we, we have a lot of opportunities, especially. For lower-income families, right? I mean, let's just kind of be blunt and say, why should private school just be for the rich kids, right? Let's let inner-city inner families, lo- more lower-income families, folks that um, have other challenges, be first at the trough to kind of have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that's what government's here for. We're not here to guarantee outcomes. We're not here to solve your problems. But we are here to pre- present as many opportunities, doors of opportunities for you, or your family, your kids, whatever. And that's so, the funnest part of the job, right? Redesigning those and creating new doors and inviting people that were never even asked. I've had families come up and go, no one ever like offered, like, hey, what do you want for your child's education? And these families come up to me all the time, and they're, they're floored that we even empower them with that decision. But it is their decision. They come first. I'm brilliant at uh, sports analogies, and I think I have one. You ready? Let's do it. Uh, it is like Governor Sununu says, I'm going to organize the game and let you play. I'll roll the ball out, but I'm not going to pay off the refs to make sure you win. Uh, there you go. There you go. It's not a rigged system. There's free agency in this, In this, right? Yeah. You can go from team to team. You, you're, you're not just um, kind of so, where you So live. you're embracing my analogy. There you go. I love it. I love. I like. I'm going to go with free agency because I don't like to think that refs are rigging things. Although we know there's a, a history of that, of course. But, right. um, but I'm gonna, no, I'm that's gonna, it. It's uh, you come first. I'm going to bring you two uh, two things and see how you feel about it. So Governor Kemp is standing by and decides the election laws in Georgia are too loose, need to be tightened up. We're going to get away from um, signature, and we're going to do uh, IDs and. And they got labeled as a racist. I remember, it was Jim Crow 2.0. And out go these major corporations. And he stood by. And Major League Baseball picked up their all-star game and left. So that's a governor who said, you can do what you want. You're mischaracterizing exactly what I'm doing. It turned out to be right. And all these corporations got scared of their employees and made those moves. Governor DeSantis sees Disney condemn him like Delta and others condemned the governor of New Georgia. And he said, no, I'm going to get you. Don't mischaracterize my bill. I'm taking away your autonomous status. You would, would you have been more like Kemp or would you have been more like DeSantis? Yeah, no. Uh, well, look, I, they're both friends. I love, I love Brian, by the way, in Georgia. He's, he's just an incredible governor. Uh, no, I, I'm a, when it comes to private business, I ran a private business. I had 800 employees. What if the Democrat governor at the time didn't like my conservative values, what I was doing with my business, and wanted to put more regulations or take things away or treat me different than everyone else? I, I would. That's not live free or die. Live free or die is what we're all about here in New Hampshire. You have a private business. I do believe the market will take care of it. And guess what? The free market took care of Disney, right? The free market took care of Disney when they said, um, we're not going to these 
woke movies anymore. And and Disney, you know, fired their CEO, and they're slowly trying to make changes, and that's a very positive positive sign. But they, that's Chris, not they did they did fire him because of the DeSantis confrontation. They didn't fire him because they came out with the "Don't Say Gay" bill. He apologized to his employees for not, for not coming out against the "Don't Say Gay" bill, which is totally mischaracterization. So at one no, point, you... I get, no, I got to be careful, Brian. They fired, look at the bottom line at Disney. It is it had a terrible year. People didn't go see those movies. They're pushing back against it. They're not coming in droves like they used to. And they said, and Disney is a private business and has any private business. They said, we need to make money, right? At the end of the day, this ESG stuff is nonsense. This wokeism is nonsense. If it's affecting the bottom line, believe you me, the board and the shareholders ultimately drive it. The market knows. They really do. Uh, so uh, that, so you would have been more like uh, Kemp? Yeah, of course. Okay. Of course. Because did we like it? Weren't we all furious as Republicans when Stacey Abrams and the Democrat establishment you know, leaned on Major League Baseball? They didn't make that decision on their own. They were totally pressured with political pressure to move out, and they did, and it was the wrong decision, and everyone got upset with baseball, right? So that's an exact example of the Democrats did it. You don't retaliate by trying to beat them at their game, right? The market will take care of it, and you just – you have to know the limits of government because if not – we're going to start a precedent and really right. a war of, you know, attacking each other's businesses. This is America. This is America. Private industry has to be free of regulation and, and those types of fears right. of, of a hammer coming down on them because of uh, where their policy. Even might. you know, there was never Jim Crow 2.0 and the Major League Baseball did cost people thousands of dollars in businesses uh, in insane. Atlanta and they moved it to Colorado. Uh, so people did pay. Was yeah. Brian was 100 percent right. He was 100 percent right. And and by the way, I mean, he was kind of copying, not copying New Hampshire, per se, but we in New Hampshire, we, you have to show your ID to, to vote. Everyone believes in that. And this early voting stuff is is difficult. And, you know, mail in voting. I don't like any of it. Um, at the end of the day, you got to play by the rules of your state. You know, I mean, you, if, if your state has early voting, uh, I got to tell you, go vote early. Go play by those rules. If those are the rules, play by them. Right. We don't have it in New Hampshire, but I can encourage everyone. Play by those rules and make sure that you're getting out. You're getting the vote out on the Republican side. We tend not to do that well enough, um, uh, you mm-hmm. know. So at the end of the day, you got to win in November. Whether it's on a candidate, whether it's on an issue, whether it's on a ballot initiative, you've got to have the right candidates that can cross that finish line in November, close the deal, so we don't get ourselves uh, in, in this muck. So you've had you've won four times, correct? Uh, I have. Four, I have. T- yeah, four, four times. times. So you've had the success. You had a huge win that was never in doubt in last election cycle. Kellyanne Conway, who considers you a friend, did say this about you, though. Well, you Governor Sinu has been a great uh, leader, chief executive of New Hampshire, and uh, I know him. We're friends. I do want to ask, though, why we got wiped out legislatively, even though he was reelected overwhelmingly. We lost a lot of Republican legislative seats, and I do think the strength of any executive is it runs in part through your ability to keep that bench filled mm-hmm. and keep the legislative populated with folks who agree with your agenda and will help you support and pass it. And also, look, he supported a different candidate in the primary, endorsed a different candidate in the primary for you at United States Senate. But once the Republican nominee there, General Baldock, was in place, I do think we could have done more to support him and get Maggie Hassan out there for out of there for six years. Would you, do you have a th- retort? No, look, Kellyanne's great. Um, I do have a full, fully Republican and fully Democrat legislature, uh, fully Republican, fully Republican Senate on both sides of the House. Um, look, extreme candidates are tough. I, I was on Hannity, right? I was on with Sean, with, with Don Boldick. As much as Don Boldick tore me apart, I said, we're putting that aside. We did everything we could to get him across the finish line. But, 
you know, I, Don Boldick has to answer, you know, for, for his campaign, of course. Um, this is a purple state, right? Uh, Florida is a very red state. There are very red states where you can win overwhelmingly. But at the end of the day in New Hampshire, candidate quality matters. Why are we first in the nation in the primary? Because we got to look you in the eye. we got to buy off on you as a person as much as anything else before we even get to the whole policy stuff. That's why all the candidates are coming up here. We're very proud of that. So it, it, it all comes back to candidate quality, not just in that U.S. Senate race, but whether it's in House races, um, and, and making sure we have a galvanized message and we're not pinned as extreme. And as again, I've I've had the I think I lost we lost uh, the the legislature in fully Democrat legislature in my second term. I was the only governor in America that turned my legislature fully Democrat to fully Republican in 2020. So uh, Kellyanne's great. She's a good friend. I, 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 I get they want to take their digs and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day. Uh, we've done an incredible job here, and, and we try to put good candidates up to win the right seats. So the former Vice President Mike Pence broke with uh, President Trump and came out and said, I am calling for cuts on Medicare and Social Security. They have to be on the table with $33 trillion in debt. We should consider raising the retirement age, number one. I think we have to, by the way. Uh, that would make sense or increase the uh, the contribution. Are you somebody that says leave it alone, lockbox, or are you like Mike Pence, put everything on the table? No, look, I'm— the first thing we have to do is get discretionary spending under control. Everyone wants to talk entitlement reform. We shouldn't be doing that until you get folks in Washington that get discretionary spending. Then the way you balance the budget, the way you control a lot of this without worrying about what benefits you're going to cut, you start to do what the, what the founding fathers wanted, Brian. They said, let the states have the say. Send the money back in block rent. Send the regulatory back to states. That, that's what former President Trump never understood. You drain the swamp by taking the control out of the swamp. Uh, Department of Education doesn't need 10,000 employees when you're sending all the rules, responsibilities, and the money and the opportunity back to the states and let them compete it out as it was designed. You can get rid of 90% of the Department of Education and still get better results and probably actually even send more, more money because you're not wasting it in Washington, but, right? But Social so Security you would give to, to the it. states? No, no. So, so, then, oh, so now we're going to talk entitlement reform. So you have Social Security and Medicare. Again, you can restructure those and create more opportunities without telling people they're going to lose their benefits. You can absolutely do it. But folks that have been in Washington too long tend to think, well, we have to fix the, get a better Washington answer, as opposed to letting individuals and communities and states having more say and control. And again, Social Security has to stay national, of course. But you can create more options, more opportunities, more comp- – it's basically a one-stop shop, right, where we send all our money. It sits in this account. It grows at a certain rate. Uh, the federal government has been pulling off of that, by the way, right? They've used it as basically their own little bank account. You have to stop doing that. So there's so many other dominoes, I think, that have to fall before we start scaring people with what entitlements we're going to pull away from them. I mean, ultimately, you're going to have to deal with the issues in the restructuring. But, man – <laughs> it's, I think it's just terrible messaging. They're, they're, they're thinking way too Washingtonized about it, way too big government about it. That's what Democrats do. Mm. Let's remember what we are as Republicans, limited government, local control, back to the states, individual responsibility. We all agree on this stuff. And that's where you get right. efficiency, you get balance, you can get your balanced budgets back into, into alignment, and you can grow the economy even faster to actually start driving you know, with this $31 trillion in, in debt. That's a real number. It's almost unfathomable number, but it's a real yeah, number. The Thirty-one trillion has to get under control. So, twenty seconds, uh, Governor. Will you, will you have to decide by the spring to be ready for debates in July? If you're going to run, no, no. Look, I, I'm not worried about that. We'll, we'll kind of see where it all goes. We're, we're, you know, we're very interested in, in running. Uh, we're raising a lot of money. My, my 
in my last 10 seconds, we got to grow this party, and that's what I'm focused on. we got to bring independents in, the next generation of Republicans. They're not with us right now, and if we don't do that, we can't win in November. So we'll see where all that takes us in the next six months, and if I want to jump on a debate stage, I'll jump on a debate stage, and we'll have a lot of fun. Right. But um, it's really about growing the party. No one, no one thinks you don't know the issues. Let's see if it resonates <laughs> with all of America, not just New Hampshire. Governor Chris Nunu, thanks so much. All right, thank you, buddy. We'll talk soon. You got it. Uh, back in a moment, we're going to wrap up this hour. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Did you recommend charges against Donald Trump? What would your reaction be if the DA decides against bringing any charges after what you've seen? I will be sad if nothing happens. I I will be frustrated if nothing happens. This was too much, too much information, too much of my time. There was just too much for this to just be, oh, okay, we're good, bye. And if it was just a perjury charge? I will be happy as long as something happens. <laughs> That's not why you're on a grand jury, to make sure something happens, is to evaluate if something happened. And you think something happened, obviously, but you're not supposed to be talking about deliberations or conclusions. And that's the four-person of the grand jury that was put in, panel, put in place to evaluate whether the Trump team violated election laws and tried to change votes in Georgia. And they looked at a lot of tape, and this is the woman in charge. And most people who hate Trump are more horrified than people that like him. Because, number one, this is a jury. If she's the best at what they got, she's between retail jobs. No offense, but there are so many retail opportunities out there. If you're between retail jobs, you're not trying. And if you see her, you understand this is not a serious individual. Should not be deciding whether, the for the first time in history, a former president is indicted. Thanks so much for listening to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Keep it here. And remember, One Nation coming up Saturday night at 8 o'clock. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.